0: Uh, my name is Tim Drum, the pastor of Student Ministries here. Um, it was a joy getting to open God's Word last week while Patrick is in India. It's a joy this morning to be able to do that again. Uh, I want to share something with all of you about myself, something that um, some of you may, may know. I think most of you probably are not familiar with, but um, I am a, a product of faithful church discipline. I don't know if you're familiar with church discipline. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus explains what to do if uh, you find a believer in sin. There's essentially four steps he walks through. First, you confront them in private. If they do not listen, you take two or three others with you to go and confront them again. If they do not listen, then you take that to the church uh, so that the church can then pursue that individual and call them to repentance. Uh, And if they still do not listen to the church, then you uh, treat them, it says, as a a tax collector, uh, a Gentile and a tax collector. And so that's essentially, you treat them as an unbeliever. You go and you share the gospel with them because they have rejected it with their life. After the Lord saved me, uh, there was a period of time of of faithfulness, uh, regular church attendance, growth in Christlikeness. And then that was followed by a time of faithlessness Uh, where I fell right back into sin, uh, pursuing uh, the life for uh, nearly a year that had characterized me as an unbeliever, foolishness, sinfulness of of all sorts. During that time, I slowly distanced myself from believers, from the church, stopped attending, uh, stopped meeting with with the guys that I had met with regularly, uh, stopped going to the regular gatherings, stopped spending time with those I, I had befriended in church and started spending my time with a lot of my old unbelieving friends instead. My oldest brother showed up at my house numerous times in tears, calling me to repentance. I felt trapped. Uh, I felt like I didn't know what to do. I knew that something needed to happen. I, I knew what needed to happen, but I didn't know how to do it. didn't feel like I could. Uh, My brother left each time distraught and discouraged. His persistence uh, made me realize that need to turn from my sin uh, and return to Christ, yet not knowing what to do, I I, I continued on in sin. Days went by and suddenly there was a knock on my door one morning, Um, I got up and went to go downstairs and at the top of my stairs I could see through the little window on my door that four of the elders were standing outside of my door Um, I was absolutely terrified and so I went and I hid in my room for about 20 minutes like a man (laughs) they kept knocking they didn't leave they saw that my car was in the garage and so they waited they said we're not leaving until he comes out and so I finally, it was like, you know what, I'll answer the door, and I can probably talk them into just leaving. So I opened the door, and they just walked right in and sat down in my living room. So it didn't work the way that I had anticipated. And during that time, they, these faithful men reminded me of the gospel, called me to repentance, and back to fellowship in the body. And they prayed for me that day, and it was these faithful men that the Lord used to begin that process of uh, reopening my eyes to the truths that he had, already, he had already shown me, restored me to fellowship with the church and continued that process of sanctification in my life. Amen. Last week, we looked at the benefit one benefit of community with believers which is perseverance in the faith uh, without this community of believers as seen in Hebrews 10 we are in great spiritual danger and that was certainly the case in my life as i walked away from fellowship with the local church this danger is the reason that paul wrote the his letter his epistle to the galatians they were facing great temptation to be pulled away from the faith, similar to those who received the letter of Hebrews. On one side, they had the Judaizers who were telling them that in addition to faith in the gospel, they also needed to be obedient to the law of Moses in order to uh, keep their salvation. On the opposite side, they had the Libertines calling themselves believers and saying that they could live a flagrant life of immorality because they have freedom in Christ. And so you're able to do that, and it's okay because you're forgiven, so you can live however you want. In both circumstances, the Galatian church found themselves in great danger of walking away from the faith for other things. Paul calls those who might be tempted by these false doctrines uh, to not be deceived by them. To the, those convinced by the Judaizers, he says in chapter three, verses one through three, he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I wanna find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the spirit, you're now being perfected By the flesh? Don't be foolish. You received salvation by grace through faith. You don't need, you don't have to to keep it by obeying the works of the law. Those struggling with abusing their freedom, he calls out in chapter five, verse 13. He says, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not use your freedom, do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You are called to freedom, brothers. But that freedom is not to serve yourself. It's not so that you can continue on in sin. It's so that you can love and be a benefit and serve others for the glory of God. That then, in chapter 5, launches Paul into what it looks like to walk by the Spirit. What that's going to look like. And he has the, that long, the famous long list of put off and put on and if you're walking by the Spirit, this is what your life is going to look like. And almost all of them, if you were to go through that list, you could maybe skim through it now, almost all of those have a direct correlation with your interaction with others in community. And then the passage that we're going to look at this morning in chapter 6, Paul explains what we're to do if someone in the community around us falls short to living by the Spirit in one way or another. This is really the practical outworking uh, or the, the, the reason why perseverance in the faith is one of the benefits of this community. The title of this morning's message is Benefits of Community, Part 2. But if you wanted to retitle it, you could retitle it, What You Want When You're Weak. What You Want When You're Weak. Galatians 6, 1 and 2, we're gonna see two tactics to protect the church two tactics to protect the church first the first tactic to protect the church is to restore restore in verse 1 we see Paul describe the the need the, the the one who is needing to be restored and what the person who is a restorer looks like look at verse 1 it says brethren even if anyone is caught in any trespass you who are spiritual Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you, will, you too will not be tempted. That very, very first word there, brethren, indicates that Paul is speaking to believers here. He's talking to the church in Galatia. He continues, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, anyone is a reference to any one of these Believers. Anyone who is caught in a trespass, the the need for restoration means that they had declined in some way. They're caught. It's an interesting word. It's a passive verb meaning surprised or overtaken. Uh, This is not an act of of high-handed, premeditated disobedience, but rather it is a, a failure to maintain faithfulness when temptation arises. MacArthur explains it this way The man does not commit the sin with premeditation, but rather fails to be on his guard, or perhaps flirts with a temptation he thinks he can withstand. Or he simply tries to live his life in his own power and fails, producing a deed of the flesh instead of fruit of the spirit. Rather than remaining faithful in the face of temptation, he caves suddenly. And this can be, as I'm sure many of you are aware, very discouraging. This can be very discouraging to, to any believer. This is the same kind of language that is seen as sin overtakes in James 1, 14 and 15. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death Now, just because this is a passive verb that this person was caught in transgression doesn't mean that they are not at fault. Are they carried away? Yes. Are they enticed? Yes, but it's by their own lusts. It's by their own sin. The word trespass can also be translated wrongdoing or offense or transgression or simply sin. Paul clarifies that this is any sin. These aren't just big sins, observable sins, that we might find particularly offensive, but he says they're caught in any sin. This is sin that's going to be either damaging to that believer or to the body of Christ, or both. I find this little word, any, to be quite significant because we tend, our tendency is to address sins when they become offensive to us rather than when it is for the benefit of the individual. I'm gonna let you continue in your sin. I'll let you keep going. I see it. I'm just gonna kind of turn a blind eye to it and, and let it go until it starts involving me. If, if I get involved, if you offend me somehow, if I get roped into it, now now I have to address this situation. Now there has to be a change because you're impacting me. The very nature of this sin that Paul is describing is stumbling. It's not some huge sin that's overtaking the person's life. They've they've fallen into this sin suddenly. That is the person that needs to be restored. That needs our our compassion, our love to be poured out to them. After describing the one who needs to be restored, Paul turns his attention to the restorer. He describes what this restorer looks like in three ways. First, the restorers should be spiritual, he says. The charge comes to you who are spiritual. So who is this group of spiritual believers that he's talking to? What is he referring to? here. So commentators suggest a few different options. Some say that he's referring to all believers in Christ uh, because all believers in Christ have the Holy Spirit within you. And so all of us, in a sense, are spiritual. We are indwelt by the Spirit. Others have suggested that Paul is saying this somewhat sarcastically, referring to the Judaizers who believed that they were this upper echelon of spirituality, However, I think the context here lends itself to understanding the true meaning of, of spiritual. The large passage right before this text I mentioned is describing what it looks like to walk by the Spirit so that you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So, what Paul is saying here, when he says you who are spiritual, he is saying you who are walking by the Spirit. You, who are actively walking by the Spirit now, should be the ones to go and to restore this brother who is out of step with the Spirit. If you find yourself stuck in quicksand, you don't want the guy standing next to you to help you out, right? Because they're stuck too. You might both end up sinking a little deeper. This understanding of the text actually finds great support in the teaching of Christ as well. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. Jesus says, why do you look at the speck that is in the eye of your brother, but you do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own? You hypocrites, first take the log out of your own eye. Before you go and you confront that person, first look to yourself, and you start walking by the Spirit first then when you're walking by the Spirit, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That is, to restore that person to walking by the Spirit. Too often in the church, there are spiritual babies who don't lack, uh, they, they don't have enough discernment to keep their mouths closed and to look at their own lives, yet they're the ones that are running around confronting everyone else. Jesus says, you're hypocritical. Don't do that. Look to your own life. Examine your own heart. If you see someone in sin, it's a good opportunity to take a look at yourself first. Take a look at what's going on in your own heart before you sit down and confront someone else. Ask yourself, why are you going to go confront them? Is it out of a genuine care and compassion and love for them? Or is it out of pride? Is it out of your own self-righteousness? Is it because confronting someone else and pointing out their sin makes you feel a little bit better about you? If it is, then you should maybe not go and have that conversation until you get your own heart right before Christ. So a restorer should be spiritual. Second, a restorer should be gentle. Paul says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, The idea of restoration here is straightforward. It carries the idea of of mending, of putting back, uh, fixing what is broken, returning back to order. Same verb is used in Matthew and Mark in reference to the disciples mending their nets. They're fixing parts that have broken. The goal is not to shame this individual into repentance. The goal is not to humiliate or embarrass them or make them sad the goal is restoration it's to put things back how they previously were this person has fallen out of step in the spirit we want to bring them back into walking in the spirit the same word is found in ancient greek literature to refer to resetting a, a fracture or dislocated bone it's been out of place and you put it back this restoration should be done in a spirit of gentleness. The word gentleness could also be understood as humility or meekness. It should characterize us as we confront sin because it is this characteristic that is, is noted of our Savior. Right? Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ was humble, he was meek. It's the kind of attitude that should characterize those who go and confront sin and it will characterize you if it is from a genuine love and concern for your brothers and sisters in Christ. But if you're motivated by any anything else, any other selfish motive, you're going to come with a kind of false humility that reeks of self-righteousness. Listen to the words of Martin Luther as he describes this act of gentle restoration. He says, if any man be overtaken, do not trouble him or make him more sorrowful. Be not bitter unto him, do not reject or condemn him, but amend him and raise him up again. And by the spirit of lenity and mildness restore that which in him is decayed by the deceit of the devil or by the weakness of the flesh. For the kingdom whereunto ye are called is a kingdom not of terror or heaviness, but of boldness, joy, and gladness. Therefore, if ye see any brother cast down and afflicted by occasion of sin with which with he hath committed, run unto him. And reaching out your hand, raise him up again, comfort him with sweet words and embrace him with motherly arms. You can hear the love and affection in those words. Kind of love and affection that you would have for your own child who's in some form of danger and you run to them to, to rescue them from that danger. That is the love, that is the care that we ought to have for the family of God as we interact with each other. Another commentator explains, the enemy sets traps and sometimes brothers and sisters fall into these traps. We need our faith family to pry open the traps and set us free when this happens. It's important to note that this spirit of gentleness, you you see in other areas of scripture that this isn't always the way that you confront sin. The spirit of gentleness is applied to those whom Sin has overcome them without intentional, premeditated, uh, deliberate action on their part. We see in other passages of Scripture that we're to deal with some believers in other ways. 1 Thessalonians 5:14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. This is far stronger. This is a, a strong rebuke. It's much stronger than the passage that we're looking at now. Continues encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Titus 3.10 demonstrates even stronger treatment. It says, reject a factious man, those causing division after a first or second warning. It just skips the rest of church discipline. You have someone divisive among you. You warn him once, you warn him twice, and then you reject him, you put him out. But generally speaking... When you're confronting someone who has fallen into sin, you're to do this with a spirit of gentleness. So the restorer should be spiritual, gentle, and third, the restorer should be cautious. Cautious, look again at verse one. Each one of you looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. You're to keep your eye on your own heart when you're going to confront someone else. You look at your own life in that process so that you make sure that you're not being tempted, that you're not being enticed to sin in that way. You should never think when you're going to confront someone that you are incapable of being tempted in one way or another. You should never so deceive yourself to think that you are above falling into sin. That's the kind of pride that comes before the fall. Just looking to yourself conveys an ongoing diligence, uh, a watchfulness over your heart. Paul's point here is that you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Wait a minute. Sorry, that was for a youth group sermon, apparently. I don't know how that got in there. You speak to those in sin, you be on guard in your own heart. You watch your thoughts to ensure that you aren't being pulled towards sin yourself. You should not think so arrogantly that you couldn't be pulled into a sin that your brother or sister has just fallen into. This requires humility. This requires not thinking of yourself as more righteous than you are. It recognizes that even the great spiritual people in life fall into sin, do they not? I once heard it said that the strongest man, the wisest man, and the one who loved God most in the Bible, all of them fell to sin. Samson, Solomon, and David. We should never think that our own strength or wisdom or love for the Lord is so great that we are are exempt from sin, we are immune. Rather, we should continually entrust ourselves to him, humbly dependent upon the spirit and examining our own heart and life. Beloved, we must be restoring one another. We must be going into the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ and calling them back to him when they sin for the, the sake of the perseverance of their faith. James five nineteen and 20 explains, it says, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We need each other for this work of restoration. We need to not only be that person who is restoring, but we need to be willing to be the one to be restored when we sin. The Lord has sovereignly placed you into the body of Christ here at EBC so that you can have a profound and strategic impact on the other believers in this room. Don't waste that opportunity. Don't squander it. You have to be part of the community to benefit from it. Before moving on to our second tactic, I want to explain how not to restore. Let me give you three ways not to restore someone. First, the first way not to restore someone is to say absolutely nothing, to see sin and ignore it whether because of pride, laziness, some other factor. If you see sin in someone's life and you decide to say nothing, that's not going to help anyone. If you're not going to restore them so they, they may continue on in sin and it's not only continuing their sin, but it's sin on your part because you're being disobedient to this passage to go and restore a brother or sister. You say, well, Tim, I'm not that spiritual person. It's like, well, then you've already got some sin you've got to deal with, and then you can, you've got to go and confront that person. Second way, another way not to restore someone is to say something, uh, but to the wrong person or people. So often, someone will sin, people will notice it, and instead of going and talking to that person, they talk to everybody else about it. That's not helpful. How does that benefit anyone? Then that person who's in sin is not being confronted, and they're being gossiped about behind their back. That's just maligning someone's character rather than being restorative. Part of walking in the spirit is putting those things off. In the list Paul provides in chapter five, he includes strife, jealousy, anger, disputes, dissensions, and factions as descriptions of the kind of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not only that, but it damages your relationship with that person. One of the the greatest hurts and discouragements to me personally is when I find out that someone's been offended by me and they've talked to numerous other people about it instead of coming and telling me. You've likely experienced something similar. If you have something to say about someone, you should say it to them. And if you deem yourself not spiritual enough to have that conversation directly with them at that moment, then you should say nothing at all to anyone. It causes divisiveness and disunity. You see that preached against in Galatians here, in Ephesians, in Colossians. We are to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace with one another. Gossip and slander wage war against those things. Tear those things apart and drive a wedge between unity that we should have. Last way I want to point out not to restore someone is to say something hurtful. To so say something hurtful and you get that as the opposite of being gentle, right? Far too often sin is noticed in others and those who do end up speaking up speak up in the wrong way. They're aggressive, overly aggressive. There's no spirit of gentleness. There's a, maybe a spirit of anger or resentment or harshness, demeaning, shaming, judgmental the goal is not guilt the goal is growth one commentator summarizes it this way he says the purpose is to help them not to beat them down and loving kindness and compassion must be operative at every stage we need to be about the business of restoration in this church it should just be the norm that we see someone in sin and just the natural tendency, anyone who sees it overflows with compassion for them and goes on a rescue mission. It should just be a natural part of the community here. This is what relationships in the body of Christ ought to look like. Your friends around you should be the kind of people who will confront you when they see you in sin. That's loving. That is a a loving, caring friend. So Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. To ask yourself, are you that friend? Are you that believer to others? Do you lovingly and gently point out the sin of those around you for their benefit, for the glory of God, for the growth and unity in the church? And when, when you're confronted, do you receive that with humility and grace? Recognizing that that person is confronting you because they love you, because they, they see something in you that is not Christ like, and they long to just see you walk by the Spirit. We need this tactic for the protection of the church, restore one another. The second tactic is to reinforce. Reinforce. Verse 2 commands this, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. This word bear here means to carry, to, to lift, to remove, to take away. It's the, the same word used of Christ bearing his cross. The word one another is a reciprocal pronoun. It means the, the action is accomplished by both parties involved toward each other. We'll certainly be talking about more one another's as the year goes on and we continue to talk about discipleship in community. We are to bear one another's burdens. These burdens can take on a variety of forms. In the context here, it's obviously the burden of of someone's sin that you come alongside them, you bear that with them to help them out. But it's broader than that. The word literally refers to a, a heavy load. It became used figuratively in Greek of oppression, of hardship in life, of difficulty in life. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament explains that it applies, A, to afflictions of the body. It applies also, B, to afflictions of the soul, to oppression, dejection, depression, misery. Another commentator explains these would include the sufferings of the human condition, illness, poverty, broken relationships, as well as the anxiety arising from persecution, loss of employment, beatings, social ostracism, execution... It is said that a burden shared is a burden halved, an insight that is consistent with Paul's words. Believers are called to come alongside one another and bear burdens together. Uh, As a kid, my teen years were spent, um, we lived on a lake in Texas. Uh, It was not beautiful. It was muddy and disgusting, but we had fun in it right next to our house, uh, was an empty lot. And there's a small beach uh, right at the, the water there, and boats passing by and storms would send waves in that would crash against the, the shore there and slowly uh, erode away at that shoreline. And so year by year, it would, there was a little bit more beach and a little bit less land on that property. Um, and it was interesting to watch Next to this lot was obviously our house, and then another neighboring house. Uh, And both of them, uh, at the waterline, there was bulkheading that held the land there, so that the waves would crash against the bulkheading and the the land would not erode away. Kept our house in place and the dock in place, and all of that. As believers, we need to be the bulkheading in the lives of other believers. We are there to keep them from breaking apart when the storms of life come. We're there to be that encouraging influence, that uplifting arm, that helpful hand, that encouraging word, that comforting word, whether it's their own sin or the roller coaster of emotional aspects of life the difficulty of other people, whatever, whatever life might bring to them in the form of a burden, we are to be there alongside one another to bear that burden together. We're to reinforce the lives of others so that they can withstand whatever burdens life might bring. In the case of those whom we've diligently restored back from falling into sin, we then go about the work of reinforcing their life. Ensuring, how do we come alongside them and help them so that they don't just fall right back into it again? Like bulkheading. Like, okay, you've got a little leak here, you're losing some ground. We're going to we're going to shore this up so that you're not this doesn't happen again. Paul explains that when you accomplish this, you fulfill the law of Christ. You fulfill the law of Christ. What is this law? This is seen back in chapter five as an introduction into what walking in the spirit looks like, Galatians five fourteen. The whole law is fulfilled in one statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law of Christ. This is caring love for one another that is going to drive us to bear one another's burdens. Why else would you bear someone's burden if not out of tremendous love for them? That sounds difficult. And you know what? It is. It is difficult to bear the burdens of one another, but it is a privilege and a blessing, and we do it out of love for one another. When you genuinely love someone, it's gonna be your heart's desire that when they're hurting, you wanna be there with them. You wanna be there for them. Hebrews 12, 12 and 13 describes this care, this reinforcement. It says, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak, and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. We're called to to rescue and be a benefit to the community of believers around us to strengthen one another and uphold one another. We're to be that constant reinforcement for those around us who might be in danger of falling. As Martin Luther once said, Christians must have strong shoulders and mighty bones that they may bear flesh, that is the weakness of their brethren. We have to have the strength to be there for each other, to be there for those who need us. And then when we need help, we need to be ones that humbly accept the support of those around us, to not be that prideful person who's going to go it alone. I'm not going to tell people what's going on in my life. My life is private. You don't need to know what's going on. I'm not going to share. Why would I share? That's just going to burden you. That's what we're here for. You see, this modeled in the life of the Apostle Paul, the spiritual giant still had difficulty. Look at 2 Corinthians 7 5 through 7. Paul says, even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. You talk about burdens, that's heavy. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us. How? How did God do this? By the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more. This is a perfect picture of this bearing of one another's burdens that ought to characterize this body of believers. In Paul's affliction, he found comfort provided by Titus burden, bearing his burdens for him, with him. And Titus had previously been comforted in, by the Corinthians bearing his burdens. This comfort provided to one another and bearing burdens compounds as we strengthen one another. You're gonna be strengthened by this person. This person's gonna strengthen you that's gonna just equip you to strengthen someone else even more. This love and comfort within the body of Christ protects the body from discouragement, protects the body from falling further into sin. We're not to keep these burdens to ourselves. We're not to bear these burdens alone. It's always so difficult to to hear that, that someone's not doing well but won't share what's going on. So that you can bear burdens with them. You can be there for them. One commentator describes the body of Christ as a family of Born again, brothers and sisters, supernaturally knit together by the Holy Spirit in a common fellowship of mutual edification and love. We all have burdens, and God does not intend for us to carry them by ourselves in isolation from our brothers and sisters. We're a family, supernaturally knit together so that we can bless one another. That's amazing. Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 25 and 26, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. When one suffers, the natural response of the rest of the body should be a a care, a rushing to aid, like you would if you hurt your hand, Right? Oh, all of a sudden, you're paying close attention to your hand. When a part of the body hurts, we ought to all rush to be there for them, to help them, to share in that burden of suffering alongside them. This is described in numerous passages throughout Scripture. Romans 15:1. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and not just to please ourselves, not just, not just for the attaboy. Oh, good job, I help them. That makes me feel good. It's because you love them. You want to see them grow. Hebrews 3.13, encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Come alongside each other and encourage each other so that you aren't hardened by sin. So the deceitfulness of it doesn't begin to take over. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, this should be familiar. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Sadly, through our own pride, our own laziness, selfishness, carelessness, among other sins, we often don't bear the burdens of those around us. Even if we do hear about him, too often we avoid getting involved. I've got my own messiness in life. I don't want to, can't get involved with everyone else's messiness. Our lives are already too difficult, or we're too busy, or we don't want to be bogged down with the burdens of others. Our care for one another in the body of Christ should override all of those sinful thoughts. We should have such a love for one another that we put aside our own selfishness and comfort for the sake of caring for the body of Christ. Is that not what you would want for yourself if you were to fall? If you were to need help, would you not want the body of Christ to rush to your aid, to pick you up, to restore you, to reinforce your life? It should be the ongoing commitment of every single one of us. One English Baptist church in 1970 made this part of their membership covenant. I love this. Part of their membership. So all the members had to sign this. Like this is what, part of what we're committing to as members of this church. It said this, we will bear one another's burdens, sympathize with the afflicted in body and mind so far as we know their case, under their trials and as we see occasion, advise, caution, and encourage one another. We will watch over one another for good. We will studiously avoid giving or taking offenses. Thus, we will make it our study to fulfill the law of Christ. As we look at the, the rest of the year ahead of us, January is already coming to a close. Can you believe it? As we look at the life of the church here at EBC, let us consider how we can bear one another's burdens. Think, take time to think on your own life and where you may be negligent in this, where you may be careless about reinforcing the lives of the believers around you. Where have you Seen the burdened and done nothing. Who could you be a profound blessing to by supporting and uplifting them in times of difficulty? Maybe you're looking at your
1: involvement within
0: the community here and you don't see much opportunity and maybe, maybe because you're not really involved much. You have to examine your own heart and life and involvement here in the community and determine if that's the case. You may not have opportunity to bear one another's burdens because you're not actually involved in the community. Maybe you show up after the first song, leave during the last, don't interact with anyone in between. Maybe you aren't participating in any form of community here at EBC. I'd encourage you to get involved. Get involved for your own sake and for the sake of the the believers surrounding you today. We need you. We need you involved. You need to be there to bear one another's burdens who might not have anyone else to do it. You have opportunity to be involved in discipleship, whether it's individual one-on-one discipleship, or a smaller group discipleship of three or four people, or large group discipleship with our home discipleship groups. There's so many opportunities for you to be involved in community here at EBC. You need to take advantage of it. If you're not involved in any form of discipleship, you, you should be. You're missing out on the, the benefits of part of living in community in the body of Christ. We've said it over and over this last year. Of we need each other. We need each other. You need the community of believers around you to restore you, to reinforce you. And we all need it personally to be restored and to reinforce us. I'm incredibly grateful for the the men in my life who've been faithful to call me out when I fall into sin. To reinforce my faith. I have no idea where I would be without the elder boy that showed up at my door that day or the dozens of men who have poured into my life since then. I'd certainly not be in a great place. The question is Will each of you be faithful to be that person for someone else? Here in this community, will you restore and reinforce the body of Christ surrounding you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you that in your sovereign plan, you have saved us in Christ. You have Indwelled us with the Holy Spirit. Sin no longer has any power over us. And yet, Lord, we still falter. We still fail. We still go our own way. And Lord, we praise you that in your sovereign loving care, you have ordained that the body of Christ be a body of believers that love one another, that restore one another, that reinforce one another's faith. God, let us be found faithful to do that for one another here at EBC. Praying pray in Jesus' name, amen.